Renee, you have started a whole new YouTube channel since last you were on here. <laughs> How has that been? That's been terrifying and exciting. <laughs> like terrifying because I quit my day job at a big media company, one of the biggest media companies in the world to do it, but exciting because I get to do my own thing now. Well, it's probably really crazy for you. From us on the outside, it's sort of like things carried on. Like as long as everybody remembered to resubscribe to your new channel, it's like, oh, you know, Renee's still just, he's there, he's doing his thing. We can see his videos every week and he's still on Mac break and uh, he's still occasionally writing articles for iMore. But for you, I'm sure it's a whole different working thing because you've been, you've been working for someone else for a long time and yeah. now you're freelance. Yeah. And I gave them a month's notice because I didn't, just in case there was a March event for Apple, I didn't want to leave them in the lurch. And this was before shelter in place and everything happened. And then that happened when I was about a week away from my last day. And I was just like, oh, my timing is the best. Yeah. I, that's a, that's a crazy way to think about it, that you've been building up a new channel in the weirdest possible time to be like starting a new business, uh, basically yeah. from day one. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's been great, and I've been really enjoying it. So, Oh, thank you. I'm about halfway back when it comes to subscribers, but I think I got the most engaged subscribers right away. So it hasn't really been uh, like too much of a problem. It is a huge building backup process, though, which is interesting and terrifying again in its own particular ways. For sure. I mean, I always say that. Like, I'd much rather have a smaller group of people who actually care about the same things as me and have common interests yeah. so much so much better to talk to them than just uh, whenever a video does get like bigger in a wider audience there's always this i don't know the comments get a little dumber and more trollish and uh you definitely have the best conversations with people that know you and continue yeah. to follow you so um yeah. anyway yeah i mean i i love watching it and you've had oh, a ridiculous you amount to talk about lately too, uh, with, you know, everything WWDC is still coming over us in waves, even though it's been a few weeks now. Um, I've been saying that this is, I don't know if it's really the biggest WWDC ever, but it feels like it kind of, you know, mm -hmm. like there was no new hardware, but the repercussions of this are going to usher in oh, really some new generations of what how Apple works, right? I mean, a lot of the biggest stuff is going to be in terms of the Mac, um, but I think it's going to also just mean whole new relationships of their ecosystem. It's going to feel very different to be a developer for Apple in, in great ways. And uh, not that I'm a fan of the PC versus Mac rivalry, but all of a sudden that conversation is going to get a lot more interesting because there will be such a big difference between yeah. what a PC and a Mac is, which there wasn't as much lately. Yeah, no, I think especially if you're interested in the Mac, if you're invested in the Mac, if you're just Mac curious, it is at least the biggest WWDC since Steve Jobs announced the uh, PowerPC to Intel transition 15 years ago. And, and I would argue bigger because that was just a CPU switch where this is switching everything, CPU, GPU, and adding in Apple Silicon, which is much more than just those things because they bundle in an Apple neural, uh, neural engine. They do their own storage controllers, display controllers. Basically, um, I made this joke yesterday, but in, instead of a, a computer platter, they're making a computer sandwich and they get to put exactly the ingredients in that sandwich that they want. And that could end up yeah. being a really tasty sandwich. Yeah, no, I... I keep going on about it. I mean, it's the thing I keep talking about constantly, and I don't want to say the same things about it over and over, but it's because maybe it's just that I want to be on record of realizing how big this is 
when like yeah. a few down years down the road, we're going to be just in a different environment. Like it will feel different to be a fan of Apple products or just to be an Apple user. And I don't know if it's sunk in with the general public yet. There's, there's big, big new, exciting things coming and it's gonna, it's gonna be gradual too. Like it will feel like it won't feel like a big shift in one day. You know, the announcement happened now. Uh, there'll be a few products maybe in the fall and then a few more next year. And gra- like, they're going to warm us into it. So we may not even realize how big of a shift it it's really is until it comes. But anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much more I can say about it, <laughs> to be honest. But well, so, I just like, I know that you understand why it's so exciting. Like the, the, the thing for me is a few years ago, um, let me give an example. So I was at CES last year with the Android Central team, and they were shooting with pixels, and the pixels was, were failing to save photos and frames of videos. So they had to throw all their pixels down and take out Huawei or Samsung phones just to keep Oof. working. And a yeah. few years ago, Apple decided to build their own storage controller with the goal of never losing a single shot or a single frame. And they could do that. And if you go through like bursts or you go through video, even when they're doing 4K 60 at inter- with interleaved extended dynamic range, they're not failing to record a single shot. And when you think about the ability to take features they want and purpose build silicon to support it, the same way like Intel's like, sorry, we can't make a 5K display. And Apple's like, okay, we'll make our own timing controller chip. Like the ability to say we want these features and then go back and build like they could, their pro workflows team could say, uh, you know, these Lightroom filters are too slow. But if you add these, like we have, we're building this into metal. And if you add these accelerators in the silicon, man, are they going to fly? And they can do that in a silicon generation and not ever have to wait or work around or do anything. So I think the potential for audio, for video, for everything is just the sky is the limit. It just depends on what they want to do. Yeah, I think anybody that's willing to adapt their apps to the way that Apple suggests you run it. They do the recommended versions of hardware acceleration. They take on as much metal as possible. Uh, And so we're instantly going to see it in apps like Pixelmator and Affinity. And I mean, there's a lot of great creative apps that have been up and comers that will instantly see all these benefits. We're also going to see big things coming over from the iPad, like LumaFusion, the video editing app. Like a lot of people have been saying, like, let's get Final Cut on the iPad. We're also going to get the iPad versions coming over. So there'll be some more like iMovie competitors. And it does mean that, you know, LumaFusion will be able to ramp up to being a, a real NLE and maybe be able to compete with Resolve and Final Cut and Premiere and stuff. So uh, th- there will just be so much to think about and talk about. And it, the cascade of changes is going to be hard to remember where we came <laughs> from. Like it's, we're going to well, be in this crazy about, different like, place and we're going to forget how boring it is now in comparison. Like I go back to 2017 when the 10.5 inch iPad with pro, uh, pro, Re- sorry, um, I'm blank. ProMotion came out for the first time, and there was a new uh, MacBook at the same, same at the same time with a Core series chip from Intel, and the iPod, sorry, the iPad Pro could do three streams of 4K, and the MacBook could not do one, and the MacBook Air of that time could, <laughs> but it had like the fans yeah. were just like it couldn't do it well, and the fans were terrible, and if you imagine Apple relaunching like a 12-inch MacBook that could handle four streams of 4K or two streams of 8K with no fan in it. And suddenly, like, the whole portable video editing space is different again. Like, all those things, I think, are terribly exciting. Right after WWDC, Stephen Hackett came on, and we talked about specifically getting excited about what professional computers were like. What will they do in terms of the GPU? Because we had no idea then. And I know a few more things have come out. I've heard people with more expertise than me talk about it a little bit. So I think I have a slightly 
better grasp on what will happen, but you definitely have a better grasp. What do you think machines like, you know, the bigger MacBook Pros, iMac Pros, and Mac Pros, what are they going to do in terms of GPUs in the future? You know, I think a lot of people got scared because during WWDC, Johnny Saruji very specifically said a family of SOCs. And if people aren't familiar with SOCs, it's exactly what I said before. And a traditional computer, you have a separate GPU and CPU, you buy them separately, separate RAM, you can take all those parts around, change them. And SOC has all of that on one chip. And you like you lose the flexibility of picking your own parts, but you gain advantages like universal memory. There's literally no bus between everything that's happening on that chip. So the speed is ridiculous. Um, and I think people got nervous because they're used to having discrete graphics on the higher end, MacBook Pros, the iMac Pro, the Mac Pro. But what I think Apple's going to do is what they showed us with the Mac Pro. I think they very intentionally built it that way. Because right now it has a CPU, it has an Intel Xeon CPU in it, and it has AMD graphics cards, but you could still replace that with an SOC and then have a whole bunch of things like they have an ASIC card now, Afterburner, that just accelerates ProRes, but you can make an ASIC do anything. So my guess is we'll have a high-performance Apple Silicon SOC in a Mac Pro that might even be upgradable. It'll just be like socketable. It'll take one out, put one in. And then if you want to accelerate a variety of different applications, it won't be a traditional eGPU, but it will be something that is purpose designed to accelerate, you know, whether it's scientific operations or ProRes rendering. Uh, And then you'll have like they just introduced uh, an SSD kit. You'll have an extra storage kit and an extra RAM kit. And you'll just slot all those things in. So I think it's exactly what we have now, but just redefined uh, in a in a post a post Intel era. I remember that was the first sign where I was like, I know they're going to go to ARM eventually. Was when they started removing uh, compatibility for things like uh, DNX HD and some yeah. of the like the more standard third party. Well, not third party, non. Quick non ProRes codecs because they're like, look, we know where ProRes sits in the market. It's what a lot of people already want to use. Let's get rid of everything else and we can do all sorts of crazy acceleration in the future. So that was when I knew, I'm like, yes, this definitely means it's coming and it's going to be, it's going to be overall very good for users. It, I mean, sometimes it's a little frustrating. It's a little harder now to move back and forth with footage between a PC and yeah. a Mac, but it, it's going to be a much, much better experience editing it on a Mac very soon. Yeah. When you look at some of the interesting, like, like for a while, they've been pushing everyone towards metal and people get upset because, you know, you can't get an NVIDIA card, but NVIDIA won't let Apple do what they want. You know, like it, NVIDIA wants to commoditize the PC so that you can buy whatever PC you want as long as you buy an NVIDIA card. And Apple wants to commoditize the graphics processor. So you you have a Mac and then behind metal, it can be anything. And for a while it was NVIDIA. Now it's been AMD. Um, but it's going to be Apple graphics chips. And if you've written for Metal, it makes no difference to your app. Exactly your point previously, you'll just, what, the, the graphics card will change, your app will work exactly the same. And I think the, the thing about ARM is that it's become such a very small part of what Apple's doing because they only license the instruction set and only for the CPU and everything else, the design of the CPU, the custom GPUs now, the neural engines, all the accelerators, all the controllers, all of that is completely Apple stuff. So, you know, some people are saying, well, it's going to force Windows or it's going to force Microsoft to go to an ARM-based chip, but that won't give them anything but the instruction set. So I think it's like unless Qualcomm wants to sit down and write an operating system or Microsoft wants to sit down and make completely custom silicon, Apple's going to be on a very different trajectory going forward. Well, I could talk about Apple all day long. We'll circle back to it because 
there are some other exciting things we have to talk about. So I, I want to come back. I want to talk about this like follow up to a Twitter conversation we had a while ago about like what are the things we wish for the most in Final Cut. That's a conversation I want to have. But what we've really been getting into on Twitter, and this is part of the reason I was like, this is t- this is the week for Renee for sure, <laughs> is the new announcements from Canon that we are both yeah. very excited about. And I got to say, your video in the in the video version of this podcast, if you're listening right now, you should be watching because Renee looks very sharp right now. He uh, he's upgraded his kit a whole lot, and it's looking amazing. Like the studio oh, is is really looking polished over there. No, I pre- a lot of it, you know, thanks to you, thanks to mutual friends, Safe Solvent and Jonathan Morrison, uh, Alex Lindsay, you know, uh, it's, it's an incredibly supportive community. And I came into this knowing nothing. Uh, Thomas Frank, Dave Wiskus gave me a ton of help, too, because they were learning with the same gear at the same time that I was. And uh, I'm using a Canon uh, C500 Mark II right now, recording in 10-bit with a uh, uh, C-Log2 profile Ugh. and with a bunch of I'm Quasar science... Is our science lights fine? I sold everything to buy it. It was my last thing before going indie. Like whatever I have left before I go indie, I'm buying this and then I'm riding it into the ground. But there are there are new cameras that we're very excited about, and I got to talk about them a bit. Um, We 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 haven't used them yet. Um, I have talked to some people that have. By the around when this podcast drops, uh, DP Review TV will also have their Canon R6 video out. Did I even say what we're talking about? Canada's announced no. <laughs> the R6 and the R5. Very, I mean, the whole world knows, right? Is, is yeah. anybody just finding out for the first time on this show? I'd be, I'd be shocked. Um, but okay, let's sum it up first. Let's just get on the same page. What are we talking about here? We've been waiting for a long time for Canon to replace its uh, kind of mid-pro line, which traditionally has been filled by the 5D. That's been the series of cameras I've been using for ever uh, since the first one so uh i don't know i think i got that around 2006 2000 i mean it's been a long time that i've been using 5ds as canon moved to mirrorless they needed to release something because they were falling behind sony was doing an amazing job with the a7 series and so was everybody else canon was looking bad for not having caught up with mirrorless so they released the r which really feels especially now you can tell that it was a bit of a stopgap. they just needed to get something out they used the sensor they already had in the 5d and they made a very good camera the r is very usable i mean it was an amazing price for that sensor because the 5d has been taking amazing photos the whole time like it's been a pro camera so i think the r was a little bit undersold because the body the body looks and feels a little bit mm, amateur-ish. And that's a lot of what's frustrated with me is the usability is missing some important pro features. But the image quality was fantastic and could compete with the much more expensive 5D Mark IV. Um, and by the way, this all of this makes me think of how susceptible people are to the marketing that comes from a camera. Like yeah. Canon positioned the R as a as a mid lower mid-range camera and priced it that way. So everybody's like, oh, that's what it is. But it still had the like the pro sensor in it. It was still taking photos as good as anything else. I see that happening again right now because they have announced the R5 and the R6. And the positioning of the 6 has been like, it's not quite as good as the 5. Uh, you know, it's yeah. more of a replacement for the uh the 6D, which we you know, sorry, the 6D was a non-full frame sensor. Um, it was a, a worse sensor, way more noise, way less dynamic range. Like images looked worse if you took them on the 60 versus the 5D. You could see it. Uh, 60 is still a great camera. I'm not 
dissing it. It's just like it was less expensive no and the photos looked <laughs> Yeah. So the positioning now of the R6 is like a, a solid step below the R5 is just wrong. That is not the case. And I, I've seen a lot of YouTubers suggesting it that way as well. And the reason, let's just talk about the specs real quick. So the stills for the R5 are 45 megapixels. If I have that exact, I, I don't, oh yeah, okay. I, I got the numbers over here. So yeah, 45 megapixels. It can shoot up to 8K raw. Uh, they, uh, what else is different? It has a slightly larger screen of 3.2 inches slightly faster refresh rate of the EVF. And I don't know if the LCD is different, but um, it's a little bit heavier. What else? What else is different? Those are the biggest differences, I think. And then the R6 is 20 megapixels and slightly smaller screen and doesn't shoot raw, doesn't shoot 8K, um, but will have slightly better low-light performance. That's not a worse camera. That's a different camera. So that's... The beginning of the reason why I pre-ordered the R6. Uh, anyway, I've been rambling for a while. Are you, are you excited for these? Yeah, I'm super excited. And the reason, like a, a lot of because of what you said, I have the C500 Mark II now as my main A-roll camera. And I've been looking for something to do B-roll with. And I was looking at the EOS R, but with the rumors about the ERS, EO, I'm going to keep saying this wrong, EOS R5 yep, and R6. I just waited and I, I wanted like, yeah, you know, like Armando was like, oh, like goosing it up. It's going to be like a baby C500. Uh, and I know some people have had some concerns and I'm sure we'll get into those. But I just wanted something that I could easily carry around, you know, in the days when eventually we'll be able to travel again and there'll be events again. Just something that I, and I have Canon Glass already that I could get that would produce b-roll that would sort of match my a-roll and i like the r5 particularly because it takes the cf express cards which i overbought not realizing there was one in the box when i got the uh the oh. c500 <laughs> so uh you know I, I have a spare one and those those aren't cheap so i was figuring if i could double up on that get the 10-bit codec i don't need to shoot raw uh you know you were so kind you helped me with the raw workflow but shooting in 10-bit is just so much faster that it it seemed to check all the boxes i had yeah, for sure. I mean, those are the biggest reasons I actually would like to have either the 500 or the 300 Mark C300 Mark III. Either of those, it's it, I would rather for the 10 bit. Like I would still shoot raw, which I like to do right now on the C200, but the most important feature is that it looks almost as good in a much much smaller file size and that is much easier for your computer to handle. Um so yeah, I mean, I think you made a great choice with the 500. It's such a beautiful camera. Like Canon is just on a roll right now. Um, and uh, I mean, there's other good things to come. Like Sony's going to be coming up soon. We won't get too far into A7S, uh, A7S3 rumors. But, um, you know, there, there will be more to talk about. It's not going to be all Canon all year. But right, right now it is. Um, we've been struggling to decide what to get. Um, yeah. The, the, I, I just mentioned, uh, I tweeted just before we started recording that I was going to be getting the R6. I put down a pre-order at the camera store in Calgary. Uh, you know, I've mentioned them on the show a lot. So if anybody in Canada is looking for a place to buy them, I love the camera store. Um, and I, yeah, a lot of people asked why, and I promised that I'd follow up on the show. Uh, you know, since I work, this is the main workhorse for our business you know, why would I choose the, the, the lesser camera, the 60, the baby one, the, the not quite R5 of the two. Um, so I, f- I figure I should explain myself, but w- so far, do yes. you know what you're going to get or are you still in doubt? 
I'm going back and forth, and I'm immediately I wanted to get the R5 just because I don't think I'll be shooting in RAW. I don't think I'll be shooting in 8K, but the ability to downsample the 8K and just get a nicer looking image, like that's what the C500 does now. It don- downsamples the 5.9K to 4K, and it looks great. But also, if I ever needed to shoot something and I wanted to punch in, or you know, it was just for some reason I needed the ability to to get the set of pixels out of the center or pan and scan or do something the ability to have all of that data uh, to me was just sort of like a, a, a not just a future proofing but a, a workflow proofing uh, step but then and I forget who tweeted it someone's like oh just get a uh, an r6 and put a put a screen recorder on top of it and and now I'm going back and forth because do I need it probably not do I want it kind of <laughs> Yeah, I think Geraldine Dunn was saying that the same amount of money would also get you, yeah. extra, I think you like a Shogun. He's 5 the worst. Or, or I love Ninja like, Five Canon Color, and now yeah. like I just see this magenta. He's, like, smart. Just, he's so he's yeah, he's terribly smart. I, th- I think for one, he's right. I don't think you're going to need the external recorder to get most of the benefits that you want. So there can be a good reason to get the five, and um, you know there are people that will use the eight K. I. Again, a lot of this is we're like reflecting our Twitter conversations, so I'll, I'll rehash some of it. But you know, I, I I asked why why do you whoever's you know listening why do you want 8K? What would you actually do with it in real world working situations? How is it practical on a day to day basis? I found the most useful responses are um, so examples like uh, Jesse Driftwood, who does yeah. really amazing edits. He recently he will punch in a lot. Uh, in the middle of shots over and over. And he had a recent one where he kept zooming in further and further to an image (laughs) that had to be a digital effect because of it was compositing multiple shots together. And by the end, it went from, you know, 100 to something like 400% on a 4K image. It looked good on YouTube. I didn't notice that there was any resolution missing, but, you know, I was also watching on my phone, I think. So if he had 8K, it would have looked a lot better. That's a real world use case, um, you know, punching in, just see, having multiple options of the same thing, being able to crop to, to, you know, maybe fix rotation or stabilization, VFX. Those are all good reasons. Anybody that's shooting 8K because they think that resolution matters is doing it for the wrong reasons and does not need <laughs> this camera. Like none of us own 8K uh, TVs. Uh, you know, I just got my first really, really beautiful 4K TV, and I've started to realize that at like proper viewing distance, there isn't an important difference between the 1080 and 4K that I watch on it. Like, yes. you can you can see it, but as l- if it's really captured well and the file's not too compressed, you get all the all the best benefits are coming from having cap the, like a great capture because you know t- Netflix shows are shot on Alexas or Reds, and than having a great TV. Like, that's what makes it look so good. And the final resolution being either 1080 or 4K is not the most dramatic thing. You can see it, but it's meh. And then the difference from 4K to 8K, you do not see it. Like, I I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I just have bad vision, but... I don't know if we ever talked about this, but one of the WWDCs, they brought a bunch of us over to Dolby. uh, And this was right before 4K started becoming a thing. And they sat us down and they showed us part of the Star Wars sequel, I forget which one, it might have been Last Jedi or it might have been The Force Awakens, and they showed it to us in 1080p HDR and standard dynamic range 4K, and the 1080p HDR just blew the 4K out of the water. (laughs) Right. And the point they were trying to make back then, because they were just rolling out Dolby Cinema and Dolby Atmos, was that HDR was far more important 
for commercial use than than 4K. And I think that's just extrapolates to the 8K part. Yeah, exactly. I totally think it's true. And so one of the things that for you, um, I think is a reason that it, you won't see a huge difference in it is because it is still only coming with Canon Log, like the original yeah. first version of Canon Log. And that has its own hard restrictions on how much dynamic range that you're going to see in it. So it will it'll never look as good as your uh, C500 Mark II, yeah. for example. Like um, it might it might be sharper. Like the oversampling could be visible in certain situations. But for one thing, you're pushing the absolute limits of lens resolution. Um, like people don't usually yes. think about lenses in terms of resolution, but you know, older L series glass from Canon, like uh, things that were made before, I don't know, you know, before like 2005 or so, yeah. they're noticeably sharper or less sharp. Sorry, they're noticeably softer. You can see the difference because the megapixels weren't as big, and if it comes from the yeah. film era film was much softer than digital. Yeah. So you just, you couldn't see the missing sharpness and you kind of need to have some of the modern lens. Like you need to have RF glass that, is, or not all RF necessarily. I'm sure some of the modern L series glass is just as sharp, but like you have to have very sharp lenses to have a perceptual difference. And if you're stopping them down to, you know, 1.4, you, you really may not see the difference. It may be something you're only seeing at like 5.6 and above. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, you're going to have less dynamic range, like I said. So, you know, even though you've got raw, it doesn't mean you can recover anything else. The way that it works with our, like our workflow, we're shooting in raw and then you bring it into whatever program you're using and you can choose if you're going to view that as Canalog 2 or Canalog 3 or original Canalog. And that has descending uh, dynamic range. And you could also just process it out as rec 709 which have the least dynamic range even though you shot it in raw so there are already rumors that canon will be bringing canon log 3 to these cameras that would start to make a a much bigger difference we'd see a lot more dynamic range i don't think they'll ever do canon log 2 because honestly because they want to differentiate it from the cinema cameras i think it'll be that'll be an artificial uh ceiling but the amount of things that you'll see as a difference using ak will be limited. And the way that I decided to to get the R6 was that I'm not going to make any more money over the lifespan of these cameras by having the R5. Um, yeah. I've had 45 megapixel cameras before. I can count I, the, the times that I needed that are maybe zero, uh, you know, <laughs> even for client work, like clients yeah. don't want or need that many megapixels. Um, so it just, it was, it was completely irrelevant when I was shooting on it before, but it does slow down your shooting because you fill up cards faster. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's my rant about it. No, I think that's totally fair. And when you look at the media, uh, now, even with the high speed, high costs, uh, I know a lot of people complain about the recording limits too on these cameras. Uh, and many people were also pointing out that they, they just can't, not that they don't shoot that long. They just can't given the size of the files and the various other constraints or the life of the drone battery they're mounting it on and all these other factors that happen while while they're shooting. And I would probably shoot for a while. A-roll, I shoot for a while, but that's why I got a Cine camera. But at an event, you have to just shoot for as long as the the hands-on area is open. And I, and I wouldn't want anything to interrupt that. But I'm still constrained by the recording media yeah. and doing 8K would give me no benefits over the cost and storage size or trying to edit and upload that in a timely fashion afterwards anyway. Yeah, and that's a time that I just would not use 8K. If you've got like yeah. time pressure 
and you're like, I got a ticking clock. And if this overheats, I've got to wait. Cause yeah, if anybody didn't see that, the issue is that at 8k or anything that's using the full sensor. So there's also something yeah. called 4k, uh, HQ mode, which that's the downsampling mode. So it reads it out at 4k and then saves the file. Wait, so it reads it out at 8k, saves the file at 4k. Um, those will both guaranteed overheat your camera. And I think people are still kind of, there's this feeling of like, oh, let's wait till we see the final production unit. But Canon has said this is the case. Yeah. Um, I, I would expect it. It will overheat. They wouldn't have said it if it doesn't. And it will be disruptive. You, If you're shooting an 8K project, you will have to plan around all of that downtime. That doesn't make it useless. You act, like that, that is absolutely still something you can do. And a lot of people will find ways to make it very useful in their workflows. I just, I happen not to really need it, so... No, but it's like, it's funny because I've seen the discussions on Twitter and there's really smart people taking different sides on it. And there's sort of like the glass half full where it's an added capacity that you may or capability that you may not need, but is there if you ever do the glass half empty, which is, yes, it's great. It's a great capability, but it's so constrained. I'll never use it. And then the glass broken with all the tasty scotch spilled out all over the table <laughs> saying, why did, why did Canon even do this? To us? Oh yeah. I don't know. Pe- people that are just are, like pre mad about it are spoiled brats and i'm not that's like an iphone launch day, right? like it's it, the same it's the same thing it was yeah. remarkable to me that is a very weird take the people that are angry yeah. at this camera which is the best camera we've ever seen and we went through that with the eos r i feel like we should have learned that lesson one thing that's an advantage for you you were saying that would be a disadvantage for me or a, a lot of other people is that you already have that cf express media yeah. which is crazy expensive uh you know i don't know how much you paid for it but i've looked at them and you got it you got to put some real money down to get into those yeah um the R5 has a yeah, CF Express and an SD card, whereas the R6 has two SD slots, and I have tons of SD cards sitting around. So for me, that's you know it, it, that's a big advantage. I can just dump those in all day. They're cheaper to buy new ones. Yeah. Um, I've really been a fan of the Sony Tough cards, which are you can get them really fast. They're not as fast as CF Express, but it's a big performance boost over the old ones. And I'm probably going to load up on those moving forward, especially because, you know, I'm going to need more space to save these 10-bit videos and they might require faster uh, write speeds um, to, to keep up anyway. So actually, and that's a bit of a warning. If anybody's planning on getting either of these cameras and shooting to SD cards, you might need to upgrade to faster cards to keep up. So just yeah. be aware and of that before horrible. you horrible. Like the velocitization is, it's the same as when you go try to go back to a slower computer. I, I was using uh, SD cards on another camera and trying to pull off an, out of two 45-minute files, and it just flew off the CF Express cards. But I was sitting there going, what's wrong? What's wrong? I go, oh, they're SD cards. I just, I mean, I just really had the feeling yesterday, actually, offloading one of the Sonys, which is 300 megabit. Wait, I forget if these are bits. Bits or bytes? 300 megabits a second. Um, those cards, that card took about 15, 20 minutes. And then I have 64 gig SanDisk cards that are, they say they're 150 yeah. megabits per second. And that one took about an hour. Yeah. So it was like three times the difference. It was a huge, a bigger difference than the numbers should have been. Um, so, you know, if you, if, if you have the slower cards, like honestly, you'll probably need to start getting the faster ones. Because yeah. even now with the R, sometimes I get um, r- errors while I'm recording where it starts to say, oh, the, the card is too slow. Yeah, which yeah, absolutely. It's surprising. It's weird, but it happens. It's hard. Technology makes it so hard to go back. This episode of the Stallman Podcast is brought to you by The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, The IntraZone is a bi-weekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech can work for you. 
You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field, so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Each show covers a bunch of different segments like news and announcements, a focused topic of the week, guest perspectives, FAQs of the week, and upcoming events. And just so you have an idea of what to expect, I want to tell you about some of the topics that you might be interested that have been on previous episodes. They've discussed working from home, which I know is relevant to many of us right now. Also, figuring out an intelligent intranet in your organization. And they also did an episode talking about API and Teamwork 2, which you should give a try. So go ahead and listen now. Just search for The IntraZone wherever you get your podcast. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. Go check it out. Our thanks to The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show. I want to make sure I talk about some of the photography elements of these cameras too, because there's more photographers in the world than videographers. So I'm sure many of them are bored to death by the fact <laughs> that we're only talking about the video features. Whereas the main reason these cameras are going to sell is, is for photography. And, uh, you know, that it is going to be amazing for those uh, those uses. Like, so we're inheriting the autofocus system of the One DX series. I, I think it's the same system as the most modern one, which should be the One DX three. I'm bad with model numbers, so if, if I'm ever saying the, the wrong number, somebody somebody poke me. But um, I do know that yeah, it is getting basically the best autofocus available. This is on both of them, and from what I've heard, uh, again, Jordan Drake has been testing them uh, for DP Review TV, and he's saying that the way that it locks on is just it is the best. It is it's even better than what was happening with the One D, and it uh, th- one of the huge advantages is that it's not only doing eye tracking, which is amazing. Like I, I love the eye tracking and I, I use it all the time, but now since it is also viewing the whole head and then the eye within that, if a person turns completely sideways to the camera, it's able to still track just as well. Cause it knows like, okay, I don't see the eye anymore, but I know that what's surrounding the eye is all headspace. So I'm going to yeah. keep tracking that exact thing. And I guess it just locks on like super glue, which the R is decent at, but not, it's not amazing. Um, and Ken has been getting better and better. And I, apparently from what I've heard, this will basically just push them over the edges as the best autofocus right now. Uh, so yeah, for especially if you're doing like nature photography, like if you're shooting wildlife birds and they're flying and you can catch them in midair with their eyes perfectly tack sharp, that's a big deal. Like that really can change the game for some people. So, um, or, or especially shooting video, trying to capture something in flight and keep it sharp all the way through. That's virtually impossible with any kind of manual focus or a poor autofocus system. So that's going to be a big deal. I am way more into an autofocus war than I ever was a megapixel war. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And say, I mean, they're, yeah, dynamic range, autofocus, yeah. um, colors. Yeah, that's what matters. Uh, so an- another thing that's going to be interesting, we, I haven't seen any results, I don't know if anybody's got results yet, is there's going to be a nice bump in low-light performance on the R6. I would expect the R5 to not impress anybody with the low light. Those really high megapixel cameras just generally have a little bit more noise. Each pixel site is smaller and that, and it will also be a hotter sensor. Like everything about it is going to be, I assume a little more challenged in terms of, of low light performance, but the R6 is, I expect going to be absolutely amazing. I bet it will be competitive with what Sony's doing. Um, And then, yeah, in terms of, stills i was talking a little bit about like why would i choose one over the other uh same thing for stills i love shooting a a whole filling a card with 20 megapixel files and they download in just a fraction of the time the card lasts me 
longer in the day to shoot because it doesn't fill up as quickly. And the 20 megapixel files can easily be upscaled. They really can't like I've had, I, I had photos on billboards when I was shooting on the 5d Mark II. I don't remember how many megapixels that is. I, th- I think it was under 20. That wasn't it like 16 or so. I mean, you don't need that many megapixels to make something, an image big, if all of the qualities there. I mean, we yeah. see plenty of iPhone billboards and they look great too. So well, that was the rumor this week that people were freaking out over, right? Was that Sony was talking or someone was leaking that Sony was talking about 16 megapixels and saying, no, no, but they're really good. 16 megapixels. Yeah, I think it's going to be 12 for the uh, S. I tried 12, yeah. I'm saying it wrong. A7S3. Um, and I think that's true. And I think that's the right decision. That's what it should be because this camera sensors aren't all the same. You can't just take absolutely any sensor and then have whatever attributes you want about it. So by making it 12 megapixels, the, the 4k becomes like perfect and it's dialed right in for that specific use. And, um, it, it, this just isn't meant to be a stills camera first. Um, so but if you honestly, yeah, if you take stills on it, they're still going to look great. And I bet most people get like we were talking about in terms of 4K and 8K. Most people won't spot the difference between a great 12 megapixel file that's scaled up and a 20 and even a 45. I mean, like, just let's be honest, like people don't see the difference as much as they think they do. And it's I know that if I was saying this in the DP review forums, they'd kill me for it. But uh, it's, no, it's, it's the truth. True on screens. It's true on cameras. The quality of the pixels is very different than the quantity of the pixels. And you, you can't just take a number and think that that's everything because it's totally not. So do, are you, do you feel any closer after this uh, conversation <laughs> about what you're going to buy? Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the idea of the CF Express cards, and that's still pushing me slightly towards the R5. But like, there's nothing about the R5 beyond that that I would benefit from, or to your very salient point earlier, would make me any extra money over the course of owning the camera. So I think. I mean, let's also. I, I feel like that gets left out of the the review conversations. Yeah. People just kind of gloss over that, like, oh, and the price is a bit different. I'm considering these both as if they were the same price. Like, I'm going to choose the camera that works for me, and I would still the feature set of the R6 overall makes more sense to me. Um, but let's also not pretend that that money doesn't matter at all, especially like this year. I mean, I, I yeah. cause you know, I also have to look at like, we had a lot less jobs this year than usual. Like this is, is this a time where I need to be getting the biggest and the best of stuff? And, you know, I think everybody's making that going through that thought process right now. And that's part of why the camera industry is having a hard time this year. You know, sales are down across the board and, you know, it that that is a real difference. So if you're in a position where you're you're usually the kind of person that like I just buy the best one because I need to be the kind of person that owns the best of whatever yeah. it is. This may be a situation where you will be just as happy with the one that is not quite as expensive, but isn't worse. Totally. And even I'm, I don't do client work, so that part hasn't been like a problem for me. But I do like I do rely on sponsorship and ads and and things like that, and it's had a profound effect on, you know, I, I don't know for everybody, but it's had a, pr- a profound effect on how many people are willing to spend uh, on marketing and sales and things like that. It's often one of the first budgets that get cut. So, it, you know, in a year where everything is exploding, it's easy to justify investing in in like you said, the biggest, baddest, latest. And holding on to it for as long as possible, but when when you're not sure about how much uh, revenue is coming in, you've got to be a lot more careful about how much you're pushing out. Yeah, I, I, and I just I don't want people to forget about that because I, I think honestly reviews just don't talk about it very often because it's not the fun part. But you know, it's also the truth. Um, 
What do you think about Canon glass right now? So you've got, you're getting a bit of a collection of EF glass. Do you have any, you don't have an RF camera, so you don't have any RF lenses yet, right? No, but I was thinking about it uh, because I would want to get another 50 millimeter uh, when I get the second camera. And do I get an EF and use the mount and then I can use it on, you know, other cameras as well? Or do I go for the RF? Uh, because it'll just it's just such a more direct connection to the new camera. We're in such a strange place for right now. And I, just on the way over here, I was kind of deciding, I don't nobody hold me to this because maybe it won't be true, <laughs> but I was slightly deciding that the next time I upgrade my cinema camera should probably be when they move it over to RF. Yeah. Because right now I'm faced with, it, it's a really challenging decision to to buy new RF lenses because it doesn't work on my C200, which is like yeah. my favorite. Like I like my C200 a lot. I love shooting with it. And if I go buy the beautiful new, you know, 24 to 70 2.8 IS, which yeah. I want to, like that sounds great. But all of a sudden now I'm starting to fragment my my lens collection and it means that, okay, well, these ones only go on this camera and these only go on that camera. And that kind of breaks some of the, you know, enjoyment of having one system. So I'm starting to think that I may sort of stay where I am in terms of lenses until there are RF cinema cameras and that's when I'll get a, a new one and that's when I'll start moving away from the EF lenses. Because um, also the RF is super expensive. Like yes. you can't just go buy, it's hard to just go buy them all at once, right? Yes. Yeah, the individual prices are a lot. Yeah, totally. I'll probably get the 1535 2.8 first. That's like what is calling me the most. Um, but th- that 50 is amazing. I, I was borrowing Jordans for a little while and yeah, like the old, the old 50 at 1.2 was not, not very sharp. A lot of chromatic aberration. Yeah. This new one was sharp. It's you, you will yeah. love it if you get it. Yeah. And that, that's always the pull. And I like it because it, it, it's just such, it was always such a great EF lens. And you know, I, I have the 1.4 because you warned me about the 1.2. So I, I went with the 1.4. Great choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, it just, it's so, I'm just so used to shooting with it. Um, and I, I do have a couple of zoom lenses too, but I end up not using them as much just because I, uh, I, I put them on and then I want to shoot and there's too many things to control at one time. I know that sounds ridiculously silly, but it's often in really high stress situations with like a hundred people around you all clamoring for the same gadget at the same time. And if all I have to do is sneaker zoom, it takes a lot of the stress, like just the cognitive load off of me. And if I can get the sharpest, best, fastest focus pictures I can and not have to worry about anything else, it's a huge benefit to me. And that's why the 50s always call to me. Well, let's uh, let's circle back around to the Mac a little bit because I think there's still a few more things to cover. Um, something that's new in my world is I got the Big Sur beta installed. So now I've been able to start sampling that and, and, and testing it out. I was saying earlier that uh, I was really disappointed because my iMac is just barely too old. The cutoff point for iMacs to run Big Sur is 2014. It has to be from, it has to be from 2014 or newer, and mine is from late 2013. So I'm the the last one that doesn't work, and it's it, it sucks too because like I got the good one at the time and it still feels fast. But yeah, uh, but anyway, I was able to borrow a, uh, a, a another iMac that I could install it on that um, has let me try it. So I've been able to see what it's like. I've been editing in Final Cut on it. And I don't know, are you, are you running it so far or are you I just am. looking at it? I put it on a set. Usually I just put every beta on every primary device because it's the only way to ensure that I'll use it enough to be able to write about yeah. it enough. Yeah, but exactly. last I year, know that feeling. Last year, the uh, Catalina beta was fine until I think version four, or version five and Final Cut just wouldn't launch. 
And then I had to like scramble for another computer. <laughs> so this time I put it on uh-huh. a 13-inch MacBook instead of my main 16-inch MacBook. Uh, and I've used it. I've used Final Cut Pro and everything on it. But if anything goes wrong, uh, it's I'm not dead in the water, desperately trying to find a, a workaround. So it's not on my primary machine, but I just will... I'll use this one a lot just because I want to know what it feels like. And, um, you know, it's been really interesting seeing this whole new design to the OS. Like I love it when things feel fresh. It's really, it feels like a new computer, even though it's running on the same machine. Um, it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's going to be a little hard to get used to though. There's still some things that I'm like, I'm curious where they'll land. Just like when we had iOS seven completely, you know, kind of pull the rug out from under us. And it's like, Hey, everything's flat now. There's no, uh, even buttons uh, are, have no depth to them, and, and yes, we've no <laughs> scaled back from that quite a bit. I'm curious if we'll have a bit of a similar direction with Big Sur that it's like, okay, we've gone a, a, a little further, and then they'll pull back a little bit. Because there's there's some places... Uh, so an example that I just noticed this morning was that the corners of Windows seem to be more aggressively rounded, like yes. it's wider radius. And so I had... Final Cut full screen, and then I realized that I can see little corners of color yeah. peeking out in all the sides from behind it. I'm like, I don't think that's really on purpose. Like, I don't think, you know, I, like, I wonder if there is a way to sort of not feel that difference. Or the fact that the transparency of the menu bar is... Uh, so I've got my background to set to the automatic, right? Where it shows like daytime, then it shifts to, to dark mode in the nighttime. I like, like, I like that. It's fun to play with. Um, but what what I realized was that in the daytime, when it's a lighter background, the dark final cut just has this like white strip going across the top of it. And you can't, you know, really set it to like dark mode. And it's not even a white strip, it's a colored strip because the background is is like pink in the afternoon. Um so yeah, there's sort of some like interesting challenges that are presented that I think we'll probably see solutions to. Um but I don't know. Overall, it's just like fun to see something totally new. So I, I like a lot of it. And I think a lot of it will make more sense when we have the Apple Silicon Macs, because, you know, maybe those will be rounder. Like, I don't know. But, you know, when they're sitting next to the ability to run iPhone and iPad apps and the the interfaces are a little bit more consistent, I think that'll be a benefit. They just won't look so out of place. But the thing that gets me is like the loss of the I- iconic identity Haha, uh-huh, the icon identity of uh, of the Mac because the yeah. iPhone has super ellipses or iOS has super ellipses for their icons. The Apple Watch has uh, you know circles for their icons. The Apple TV has those long rectangular round recs for their icons, and the mm. Mac had just arbitrary shapes uh, or you know they had a couple of different variations, but they had this, the uh, canted rectangles and the arbitrary shapes. And now they've been stuffed into super ellipses as well. And again, I presume to look you know better next to the iOS icons that are coming in and are going to take over the dock alongside them. But it just, it's a, it's a profound loss of identity for me that I think is crucial to the, the personality of the Mac. And worse is like, they can't make up their minds. Some of them are still, some of them are super flat and others like the uh, FaceTime icon and the messages icon look like someone took a bicycle pump and just started, you know, <laughs> yeah, ballooned them weird. up. There's no consistency there. So I'm hoping yeah, that's something yeah, that yeah. gets heavily regulated before they ship i feel that loss of identity too and i mean i'm i'm very much like a mac person yeah Uh, like i like i I like my mac and um but i i do feel right away what they're going for of that unity because switching back and forth from the ipad like right away you do feel this closeness you're like oh yeah these are much more related and much more 
from the same co company and part of a family and um, it is working in the way that they intended. Yes. And I think people that are less focused on, on their Mac. So for example, there's a lot of people that won't even notice the icons change because you know, people just, people don't notice things. Yeah. Um, I think they'll be a million percent happy with it and it will only be an improvement for them. Um, I think it's people that like us that kind of have the sentimentality with it that will struggle yeah. a little bit more, but I think average people will not. Yeah, and overall, I mean, it's it's a very well thought out. Like, and that was true of iOS seven as well. As controversial as it was, I remember Mike Stern, who's the graphic, uh, the um, user experience evangelist at Apple, gave a talk that first year, like an hour long talk, explaining the design language, the unified glyphs, like just every thought that went into it. And you could agree or disagree with the philosophy or the the execution of it, but it was incredibly well thought out. And I got very much the same vibe from this. Like when you look at like these symbols that are now cross iOS, Mac OS and the, the sidebars and the spacing and just all the little details, it's, uh, and we saw Alan Dye talk about it this year, but it was, it was a very well constructed design philosophy behind it. It wasn't just arbitrary. Oh, we'll make this round and this square and we'll just, we'll jazz it up so that it looks different. It has been intentional and the purpose of it, I think is going to have serious payoffs. Um, classic question. Okay, so would you rather have, you can only have one. Would you keep your Mac, iPhone, or iPad? What's the, the one that you, could, you have to have to survive? So it, it, it's a hard question only because I currently rely completely on Final Cut Pro for like my job. So without it, you know, I could edit on iMovie on my iPhone because my natural response would be my iPhone because it's just it's it's basically a cybernetic device now. It's my assisted memory. It does it just does everything that my human half can't keep up with anymore. So it's almost like it's a part of me, and it would be very hard to give it up. But it would be so much harder to do what I do with an iPhone than with a Mac that I I would probably have to choose the Mac and just feel like uh one of those one of those ex Borgs from the Picard series for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, that's how I feel too. I mean. It, that's probably the I'm more attached to my Mac, but I could probably do more things in the world if if it kept my iPhone. Because like, okay, I would just stop using Final Cut. I would start doing just shooting and editing only on my phone, um, and I'd be frustrated. But I could probably yeah. do more total things in life. I don't know. That's fair. Another another question. I, I was asking Stephen this. I kind of feel like I want to ask everybody that comes <laughs> on. What for you? Why? do you choose Apple? And I mean, for you, it's, you know, it's not just that you've chosen it as your technology that you use to create things, but it's the company that you focus most of your content on and that your, uh, you know, a lot of your, even just your personality is built around is, is the, this one company, Apple. For you, what attracts you to them and why do you stick with them over time? So I bounced around a lot you know, since I was a kid, I had an Apple II Plus, and then I had a DOS box, and then I had Windows, and then I had an Amiga, and then I had a Performa, a Mac Performa, and then a Windows laptop. And I was, you know, I, I just, I looked at them all, and I still look at them all as tools. And I was all in on Microsoft for a while. I had a Windows laptop, a Windows desktop, an Xbox, a Jornada, and then a Palm uh, Trio Pro phone. And I always liked this beautiful dream that everything would just work together, and Bill Gates would go up on the CES stage, and promise like that was coming year after year, but it just never arrived. And then uh, at work, I, I used to get Dell laptops. I worked in graphic design at the time and I would get a new high-end Dell laptop every year. It's just part of the company's contract. And the Vista version arrived and it didn't have drivers 
for the screen in the laptop. So it just like the screen just wouldn't work. And the IT guy said, that's it. I'm tired of this. We're getting you a MacBook. And I think it was Tiger at the time. And I got a 17-inch MacBook Pro. And it was around the same time that, it might have been before that, actually, before Tiger, because it was right around the time when Steve Jobs did the iPhone demonstration. And my jaw literally dropped when I saw that interface. It was like something from the future. Uh, and, and I just wanted it. And of course, we couldn't get it in Canada for the first year. But I started to see signs that, you know, it was based on OS X that Apple was working towards this, what became the Apple ecosystem. And that to me is the value of it. There's sort of the value of the ecosystem, but also the consistency. Like there's a lot of good cameras, but the iPhone camera is consistent. They made that storage controller we, we talked about. So I never have to worry about losing stuff. It's a single platform. So developers, like all the camera apps are better because they're targeting one camera system, not a variety of camera systems. And all of those things just add up to where I think, you know, and I hate saying it because I do like variety, that if you are working in this industry, there are tangible benefits to being on an Apple pipeline from color management to just all these things are are more reliable if if you're in all in on Apple to do them. I mean... I can't argue with that. I feel the same <laughs> way. And I think one way that I've, I've thought about it is that, you know, with, with every product you buy, there can be those moments where you look at it and think, why did they make this decision? Like, how did this one thing end up happening? And of course, that still happened on Apple products. Like, they're not, you know, they're not perfect. But there's so many less of those. And there's so many more times that I look at details, design, design decisions that took somebody a lot of time and effort to come to. And you're like, wow. I never thought humans could do that. You know, th- those just like, th- I didn't know we could aim so high for what a product, any kind of product, just like a, a, a physical device that you use could be this, you know, interesting and refined and, and make decisions that feel right to me. Um, and, you know, I do this with, I do this with my cameras as well. Like I think about all the devices I use in that way. And Apple's just been the most reliable about making me feel like that over and over again. Uh, and again, that's a lot of the reason that I stick with Canon as well. I've used Sony's that take amazing images and have incredible specs and, you know, like they work very well, but there's so many more little things in it that I look and I'm like, why is this <laughs> like that? Yeah. And with the Canon, it's much more like, I get it. Like I, I, I'm totally applaud the designers for having made the specific decisions that they did because it gave me a camera that I like to use. So yeah, yeah and in, I know, in like, general, people- that. I know people complain about the prices. And I think that's totally valid. But as an example, I've been getting MacBook Pros for over a decade now. And my eight and six-year-old MacBook Pros are with my godkids. And they're, they're still perfect condition. Like the, I, I had plastic Dells that would break the first year I had them. And these unibody aluminum MacBook Pros are still literally perfect. Like everything runs great. I think we've, we've fixed a few things on them, like maybe changed the hard drives, something, but they're still running perfectly well. And my family has most of my old iPhones and they're still in perfect condition. They're still getting software updates. Uh, and that's another factor in the reliability that I, just, I don't have to worry about replacing them so often or, or, or you know, having to buy new things all the time. I choose to. I don't have to. I want to wrap everything up with a topic that was, it was a really fun conversation on Twitter. So let's readdress it here. And that's just wish list for Final Cut Pro. Um, what are some of the things that, because, you know, we both use it heavily. Again, it's one of those, the, it just feels the most right, you know, of, yeah. of all the NLEs that I've used, it's the most like natural and organic to the way that I think, the way that I edit. Uh, but it is, as with anything, not perfect. 
Um, what would you like to see in the next version of Final Cut Pro? So I have sort of three big things that, uh, you know, obviously there's a ton of features, but the three biggest things for me, one is I love snapping to work like it does in iWork. So if I'm dragging two lower thirds around or two different graphical elements that I'm overlaying, they would edge detect and I could just line them up without having to do it by eye. It would just snap to the same position that like if I have one in the top left and one on the bottom left, you know, the, the left part would snap. The two bottom parts would snap. All of that stuff worked just like iWork. Um, another one is I would love strip silence like it exists in Logic because when you're doing video podcasts, that's such a great feature for audio podcasts. And if people aren't familiar with it, you just pick a bunch of audio and you say strip silence and it cuts it for you. You set a limit to how long the silence has to be and it just cuts out everything in between. Like It cuts out all the silent moments and then it's super fast to move around dialogue to where you're not over-talking or overlapping uh, or anything else like that. It's just, it's such a workflow accelerator. And my last big request is, and I don't know how recent this is, it feels like it's always been happening, but it's worse lately, is just I want better control over the amount of storage that Final Cut uses because I'll import oh, yeah. like a 100 gigabyte 10-bit um, file and I'll go away for 20 minutes and come back and it's using 600 gigabytes of of my hard disk and I'm getting hard drive warnings. And if I delete the stuff, like I'm sure there's a reason for it, but if I delete it, it re- like it's still fine. I can scrub through it fine. I can render it at the same speed. It, it just seems like once in a while, it gets completely out of control filling up that render folder. I know that reason all too well. That's actually why I initially switched from Final Cut Pro 10. So I was on Final Cut 7. Yeah, I switched to 10 when it was released, but then I went back to Premiere and that was the biggest reason is I couldn't figure out how to manage my files. And, you know, eventually now that I've found the solution, it seems simpler, but I'm sure there's other people that still run into this and are having a hard time finding out how to do it properly. And it's just, I don't want, I don't like how much Final Cut wants to manage things for me. So what I do to, to avoid this, like my workflow to make it as, as manageable as possible is whenever I create a new library, I modify the settings to have the cache sit in the same folder right next to the library file so that it is visible. Because by default, Final Cut wants to manage everything inside of its library file, which just looks like a like a project. You know, it it looks like a file, not like a folder, yes. even though it is a folder inside. Um, so if if I pull the cache out. When I want to, I can just quickly delete it at a moment's notice because there's yeah. times that a, a cache files, yeah, hundreds of gigs. Yeah. And it's for a project that was already done. And yeah, and if you want to clear it out, otherwise you have to launch Final Cut, like yeah. let everything load in and then go through the process of deleting it. And that's just not convenient. Like, and it's not intuitive, most of all. So if you use the app in the way that you kind of would expect, like you just follow the flow that a standard tutorial will show you, you will end up with those hundreds of extra gigabytes and no really clear path to getting rid of them. Um, so, you know, that that accelerates the workflow as well. The fact that it creates all this cache is part of the reason it'll play back and export really quickly, but it it just, it gets so bloated and confusing to manage. So I've found the workarounds now, but I think for a lot of beginners, it's a total pain. My biggest things though, the number one thing for me, which I don't know if anyone else can relate to, but is I just, I really want some support for vertical video. Yeah. Uh, I've been editing them more and more and more. And there is just really, I mean, you are tricking the system into working for you. You can't lay out the, uh, the windows in any way that gives you an appropriately tall screen. So 
the simplest example of how this should look is that on, you know, on the right side where your info screen goes, that is a long, a very tall strip of information. And if you double click the top of it, you can even maximize it. So it's going from the very top to bottom of the screen. I need to put my video over there because I need to, it to be as big as possible, but it, to make it any bigger, I need to hide my timeline more. Um, then there's other things like in the browser on the left, if you have shot it in horizontal on a camera that doesn't auto rotate, like it doesn't understand vertical video, um, you can only preview it in horizontal. So you have to add things to the timeline to see the rotation. And that's crazy (laughs) and not the way that it should work. Um, I'm actually just realizing, I bet I could, I'm curious, Finder and Preview has a rotation feature. If I just open stuff in quick preview and hit rotate, will it like save that metadata and then work inside of Final Cut? What do you think? It should. I think it absolutely should, whether there's a glitch at times or not. I don't know, but I think that absolutely should work. I'm going to try that. That might that might help a lot. They still need to support it properly, but yes. it would go a long way. Uh, other things, there's there's still a lot of missing raw support for yeah. specifically for the cameras that we use. So I'm sure the C500 still doesn't have raw support in Final Cut, does it? It's the same. You have to download the file and uh, from a Canon, which is just wonky to me. And then it doesn't. You don't. You can't preview it. As, it the whole thing is not as good experience. And also, you don't get the controls. Yes. The, the like raw controls that you do another one. So uh, you know, I've done the. It's a really quick test to do in Resolve, where you open a can, any raw file. First, try bringing the exposure slider, the raw exposure slider, down by one stop, and compare that to bringing the over. Uh, I don't know any other way you want to bring the exposure down, like using the what's called the overall adjustment that does the lift gamma gain together, or you could do the curves, whatever you want. It will not preserve the highlights or the detail in the way that the the raw exposure slider will like not, it's not even close. It's not a competition. It is losing information. It's not able to preserve or utilize the raw file. And so unfortunately, because final cut only has that available, you're, you're getting benefits, but it not, not even close to what is, is actually accessible to even like, let's say red users in final cut, they have these tools available. I I'm pretty sure. Um, but we don't. So, uh, yeah, just like why, I, I would just love to see full raw support for everything. It will be a bigger deal to me when the raw support becomes more native. But I, I did see a lot of people on that thread say they also wanted the Lightroom style controls for color correction because Final Cut has the curves, you know, and they have uh, the wheels and all of those things. But they don't just ever give you a Lightroom style panel, which I think a lot of people are used to using for color and grading and a lot of in just a wide variety of other apps. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the there's, you know, Final Cut is relatively easy to use, but uh, there it can always be a little bit easier. Um, I don't know. I I know that they are are working hard to make it better. Um, I was it was at uh, Camera Camp, which was a while ago now, but I talked about it quite a bit while it was happening. There was um, some f- folks that were both like Ripple Training was there. They are absolute yeah. experts in terms of Final Cut, um, and. Uh, and somebody from Apple was there as well from the Final Cut team, and we were just able to talk about it a lot. And they get it so much more than I do. Like, I think I have the problem. I'm like, I know what the problem is. I know how you should solve this. And then they're like, well, keep in mind that in if you make those changes, you're going to have to deal with X, Y, and Z that I never even considered. So 
but I, I st- I'm using the program so much that I can pick a million holes in it and yeah. ask for new things all day long. So yeah, likewise. But this has been really awesome, Renee. I can't wait to see uh, your your next video because you're killing it on the channel. And thanks for coming on here. Thanks for having me. I love the show every week. It's it's a privilege to be back on. Mm-hmm.